brand is more important than it's ever been. Companies that grew up with passerby readers are dead. And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models. If you look at what Snapchat's doing with advertising and storytelling, it's clear that digital can be more than the thing that we think it is. Welcome to the DJ Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week's podcast is a live podcast from an event we did for Digiday Plus members at the Vox Media offices here in New York City. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. It gets you Digiday Magazine, a steady stream of exclusive research about the industry, access to our Digiday Plus Slack community, and invites to exclusive member events like these. Um, our next event is in January with Bleacher Report. If you're not a member, please sign up. It's only $395 a year. It's completely worth it. And uh, for our podcast listeners, we have a discount. Enter the code podcast at checkout and get 10% off. For more, go to digiday.com and you'll see the Digiday Plus tab on top. So at this live podcast event, I spoke with Lindsay Nelson, who is the CMO of Vox Media. We talked about the mistakes publishers have made this year, the chase for scale, the pivot to video, you name it. She also talked about uh, the consolidation that will happen uh, in in the coming year and what she is expecting in 2018 overall. So please listen. Welcome. Lindsay Nelson, you're the CMO of Vox Media. True story. Okay. So this is the worst time of all times to be in media. Yes or no? No, depending on who you ask. <laughs> I'm asking you. Um, no, I, look, I think it's a challenging time to be in media. I think it's a complex time to be in media. But I think there's never been a moment in history where it's more urgent for us to figure out a business model that can uh, put independent media companies on a path to sustainable financial well-being and to be able to fund great journalism and great entertainment that all of our many of our companies in this room do. Sounds good in theory. Yet... <laughs> There is an endless drumbeat of bad news. We cover some of it uh, coming out of digital media. We have Mashable going for fire sale. We have BuzzFeed missing its numbers. Uh, We have layoffs happening at various places. Supposedly Vice missed their numbers. Is this just, uh, you know, basically expectations were too high when it came to digital media? I think a lot of digital media companies were on a really accelerated path. And I think for some companies, that path, the final destination on that path may not have been sort of long-term sustainability. That, that final path might be an IPO or an acquisition. And I think in a world where digital media was really sort of drunk on the ability to scale, when the business model started changing, the expectations and around revenue were still sort of mapped to that scale model, where if you could drive big audiences, you could monetize those audiences in a pretty simple way by running banner ads on a website that you owned and operated. And I think when the world started changing around us, um, the advertising market started changing, but also the way that consumers interacted with our audiences changed our business models. And I think some of us saw that probably a little bit earlier than others. So explain when Vox Media saw this, because this, all of these forces, I mean, they're buffeting everyone. I mean, and everyone has different capitalization structures, um, and everyone executes differently, which is something that I think is is sometimes overlooked. There's no rule book right now. And so I think you're starting to see that everybody is sort of inventing what they think the business model should look like. But that also means inventing your customer service strategy. It also means inventing your go-to-market approach. And I think um, it's a lot of 
uh, while the sort of the product side, which is like the content and our relationship to our audiences was changing, the business was changing at the same time. And I think those are two sort of balls to juggle simultaneously is really hard. And I think for us, I don't know, what was that Mashable article that you guys wrote? What was the headline? Uh, pivot to reality. No, the one around jack of all trades, master oh, right. of yeah, none. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was sort of the explanation of sort of where the brand started going wrong really was as every media company has pressure to scale we're all running businesses and I think for a lot of companies especially sort of single brand companies that pressure to scale meant that you had to cover more and more things with inevitably less authority you know think about what Mm -hmm. Mashable was sort of originally known for which was like understanding sort of the social web and I think now if you go to their drop down they probably have things like health and wellness or entertainment and I think when you do that without having a sort of strong brand identity around each of these content strategies you sort of become known for nothing and I think your business also sort of doesn't really like fit anywhere I mean I think you could say the same thing for Huffington Post right I Um, mean it's getting stuck in the mushy middle which has never been a good place, but it's a deadly place. And though. meanwhile, we're in a world where there's there's never been more content available to consumers. So if your brand gets diluted and consumers sort of don't know where you fit into their lives, then it it becomes, I think, really hard to sort of sustain that audience when they have so much choice. And I think what you see in our business model, we've always been multi-brand. And let me tell you, multi-brand is really complicated sometimes on the business side, right? It's a lot easier to be a salesperson and walk into the room and say, hi, I'm from Bleacher Report and I'm going to talk to you about sports. And, you know, we ask, you know, our our sales team and our marketing team to, to think across multiple categories. But ultimately, that gives a buyer or a customer an ability to work with you across different audience segments, work with you across different sort of needs, right? Like, if, hey, do you want to buy against audience? Do you want to work with us in branded content? Do you want to work with us in around events and conferences? So it allows you to sort of weather the ups and downs that are often happening around you while still having brand integrity that helps, mm-hmm. you know, audiences know how to connect with you. So how is it different how you organize at Vox Media than like a Condé Nast, how they would organize a, a multi-brand, you know, media company of a different time? So... I've never worked at Condé, so the only thing I know about how their business runs is what I read in the press. And what I will say for a lot of portfolio companies that you might describe as sort of legacy businesses where you have a bunch of different assets, many of those companies didn't have a shared technology infrastructure, which means that for a lot of these companies, each brand is operating on a different CMS. They might have different ad units. They might have different policies around branded content. They also have different sales teams, different executive teams. So that's a lot of infrastructure to build around a single property. And then if you have two properties that are in the exact same category, you're not only sort of competing with yourself in the same marketplace, but you're like mm-hmm. double staffing resources that could be shared and leveraged across an entire mm-hmm. portfolio. Well, they were known for duplication, right? I mean, it was everyone, everyone every single title was going to fight for that title out in the market. And it was as if the other titles didn't exist. And now they're trying to come back together where things like video, it's like, okay, let's make this a shared service. Let's have a shared news desk and then just kind of tweak the content to make it seem different for the different audiences. Right. I think penetration in a category can be really powerful. 
And sort of if you want to own, if you want to win in a certain category, having multiple brands that speak to that audience, I think can be really powerful in the marketplace. I think it's a lot more powerful if you have one conversation with your customer and then you can have a conversation around scale versus having two separate customer conversations where you're cannibalizing the same budget. Mm -hmm. But that also requires, I think the technology piece is not a small one here, right? We have visibility across our entire portfolio. Every single piece of content that's published um, on our platforms is published on the same platform. That gives us incredible visibility into the data across those platforms, into audience insights. But it also allows us to go to the marketplace and say, we actually have incredible scale. So if you're just looking for massive audience buys, then come work with us because you can you can work with us with a single brand or you can work with us across the entire Vox Media portfolio. Mm-hmm. So scale still matters because a lot of people like to say scale's dead. A lot of people like to say a lot of things are dead. Right. But it's all it's all dead. Um, I think of course scale matters. I think, but I think what what doesn't exist in a lot of other places is is quality at scale. And I think people confuse those things because there's not a lot of examples of quality at scale. Um, and, and I think if you can sort of offer either f- for an advertiser who wants to buy against audience or wants to buy against intellectual property or, or content adjacency or branded content, of course an advertiser wants scale. Of course they want to work with fewer partners. But can you can you do it in a way where they can still get the excitement, get the, 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 the sort of customization that they often want to get with working with a single partner? Or can you offer them um, the ability to partner with one brand? Let's say you're doing a collaboration with Eater, but guess what? There's foodies across our entire portfolio. So how do you use the credibility of Eater, but then extend that program to all of the people who might be interested in that program? And that's a big advantage. So we're doing this at the end of 2017. And I think if there was, you can take a sip of wine. Uh, No one can see that on a podcast. I think if there, the was, if there was if there was the a word of the year, maybe we'll do a word of the year. At the Digiday word of the year for 2017 in media, it would be duopoly. Yeah. Your favorite word. Now, I got an email um, from uh, a chief revenue officer today who said, "If nine out of ten dollars are really going to Google and Facebook, why?" Why don't, why don't brands just have like a 10-person in-house media team? And basically, this person mm-hmm. was saying, it doesn't believe these numbers. I know you're tired of the duopoly talk, so that's why I'm asking you about it. Um, first, do you really believe that the, the duopoly is taking up 9 out of 10 advertising dollars? I, I don't like believing it or not believing it feels like I'm contending with research. I think what I do believe is that the marketplace feels irrational to me. I think the conversation happening around brand safety and this commitment to quality feels in conflict with the investment patterns of marketers right now. And I think the percentage of do- digital dollars going to a solution that is really a pure audience-only play feels irrational to me. And I feel like there will be some sort of reconciliation of that. that. I'm just surprised it's taking as long as it is. Well, usually, I mean, there's talk and then there's action. And there's more talk than action. Well, marketers love to talk, but then they end up going back to doing the same thing. it's cheap and efficient. What, just talking and not doing? No, I think like I think that the solution that Google and Facebook provide to clients is like incredible cost efficiency and incredible scale. And I think that 
um, until they start recognizing that there's actually like alternatives to, to where to invest those dollars. I mean, our business concert is a great example. Um, you can you can get the same sophistication around audience targeting, but you're going to get beautiful ad creative against premium publishers in a purely safe environment that you can trust. That exists today. But what's not happening yet is marketers moving those massive budgets from Google and Facebook and, you know, like chomping down our doors. It's a super fast growing business and I'm really bullish on it. But I think that there is still a lag in um, what marketers are saying and where they're actually telling their media companies to move dollars to. So who do you blame for that? Do you blame the marketer? Do you blame the agency? Lots of people like to blame agencies. I don't know. I guess this is what I say is like the notion of feeling it's irrational means like I don't fully understand why it is the way that it is. Misplaced incentives, maybe? Probably. I mean, I, th- I think I think the media business needs to, like, look, we have had to fundamentally change how we approach our business in the last three years. Fundamentally. I think if 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 I think that there is a probably a delay to some degree in the transformation and evolution of the way that media is bought and sold. And I imagine that probably has something to do with the incentive structures of agencies. I also imagine it probably also has something to do with the way that their clients are putting pressure and and the way that they understand the return on that service. And it probably also has something to do with sort of new inventory solutions in the marketplace and those three things have changed a lot and I don't know that they're all changing in the same way or that the where they're landing is aligned okay so the other thing I think would be our term of the year outside of word of the year would be pivot to video we can't get enough of the pivot to video I've used pivot to fill in the blank pretty much in any combination (laughs) possible in headlines at this point Um, one it's become synonymous for the desperation that publishers feel in an irrational market. Is that fair or unfair? Because the, the the feeling is the pivot to video is really a a pivot into trying to find some kind of sustainable business model for expectations that were set on a display market that, that never grew the way it was supposed to grow. It's interesting because... I don't understand it the same way. I see the pivot to video as a transition that followed consumer patterns. Um, In fact, I would argue almost the opposite, that the business model has lagged long behind the 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 content strategy and so i i don't think very i don't think there's a whole lot of media companies that thought i have no other ways to make money i'm going to go spend a ton of money on production make a bunch of video with no proven monetization model especially on facebook and hope it all works out i think consumers started preferencing video and so if you want to tell great stories where in the ways that consumers want to connect to those stories video is imperative um, but video gets higher CPMs. I mean, let's, this is But a in a pre-roll model. So, I mean, I don't think most of us are not seeing the majority of our video growth on owned and operated platforms. And so I think for, I think the majority of conversations I imagine you're having with other media companies is that they made a huge bet on Facebook, that Facebook wasn't able to deliver a viable business model. They became incredibly leveraged on the expense side. They got intoxicated by this billion view game because it's really fun to get on stage and say, we have billions and billions of views as sort of a way to say, think about us like you're thinking about TV. And in fact, to a large part, the monetization hasn't been there, at least in in off-platform video. 
in the way that pre-roll, you know, existed or was meaningful a couple years ago. Okay, so if 2017 was the year of intoxication on Facebook, is 2018 the year of the hangover? I think most media companies at this point in time are having to ask the tough question on are you chasing views is your goal around video to stop thumbs is your goal in video to win emmys is your goal in video to build ip that can travel and can spin off franchises and that can have a role in people's life where they actually lean in and stay a while or is your goal to jack up video views from two to three seconds so that you can talk about that on stage and i think 2018, I think, is the year where we actually stop talking about video in such a monotone way and we start talking about the nuance that is uh, within video as a content medium. And I think mm. once we unpack it and we double click into that, I think we're going to start seeing we're not all playing the same game. Let's double click. Let's double click. Uh, so explain how Vox Media's uh, video strategy is something more than just racking up millions, hundreds of millions of views on Facebook. Yeah, I think the the simplest way to think about it is we want to matter. And we want to matter in people's lives. And we want to build brands that have permission to travel. And I think it's really hard to build a brand that matters when you're only programming to Facebook. And so I think what our, if, if you had to sort of, of course we have nuanced video strategies across our different brands, but at the highest level, we have a video strategy that is focused on telling much deeper stories and we're programming to places where people are ready to consume content in a deeper way. But what is that? I mean, so, I mean, we wrote a story today. Seahill wrote the story, actually. I say we when Seahill <laughs> did it. Uh, Seahill wrote a story today about how, um, you know, that's all well and good, but Facebook's the only one out there buying. It's just not true. Uh -oh. I mean, I think I think Facebook. I mean, I think there's. Oh, God, I forgot you were here, and I totally. I would this have is, changed. This is the best my part answer. of Digiday Live podcast. I was it looking gets awkward. past the audience. Um, I think the. I think. I think Facebook's. Face. It is in Facebook's best interest to figure out a way to keep people on the platform and to engage people beyond a three-second view. Facebook is a very wise company, and they know that that cannot be their, their long-term strategy. And so I think their recent interest in acquiring higher quality, longer content is, is a step towards trying to be considered a real video platform where people come and expect to consume video. I think to some degree people are like almost watching video ad hoc, you know, it's like you don't go to Facebook and, 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 and flip down your feed to necessarily consume video in an intentional way. I think this is a step of them trying to build an intentional consumer habit. Um, I don't think that that means that they are the only player in the space. I mean, we just sold three shows in the last couple of months. And um, some of those shows were to Facebook, but we also showed shows to some of the OTT platforms and some of the traditional networks. So I do think people are, other people are buying. So TV. But I didn't read the article, so I'm sure I totally agree oh my with God. you. <laughs> it's a very persuasive, very persuasive article. Uh, uh, so t TV is, is still a goal because this is one of those things where what do we mean by TV? Do we mean by like a thing that hangs on your wall and you can get to content on or as in like 
major networks like okay, linear. NBC Universal. Okay. Linear TV? Well, what is on? What do you consider oh, House of Cards? No. Well, what's House of Cards? Is that linear to what is is that linear to you? That's not linear. Okay. Wait, so Netflix is a goal? No, I was the pro the original programming that network or that Netflix creates. Do you look at that differently There's than a big difference between selling NBC? a show to ABC and and selling a show to Pluto. There just there is, right? What's Pluto? <laughs> exactly. That's my point. Um I mean, like, not everything is equal, but I think a lot of... Is there a, a difference of, between selling a show to NBC Universal and selling a show to Netflix? No, probably not. I mean, the money is... If the money is similar, that's great. But a lot of digital media companies have talked about moving towards TV. Define it how you like. Sure. Um, it's not Facebook. It's not three-minute. It's, it's more... It's episodic. It's building franchises. Is that still the goal? And a lot of digital media companies talk about it, and then they keep talking about it, but then we don't, I don't, I, I keep asking like, okay, where do I turn in and at what time to see this BuzzFeed show? Yeah, I, I think you're right in that there's a lot of talk and not a lot of companies actually sort of delivering on that strategy, I imagine, because I think it's probably a pretty new and somewhat like juvenile strategy for a lot of companies. It's new space. Why is it juvenile? I think it was meaning as in a, th a thing that they haven't done before. I think right. for us, we think that we have, this is actually like a pretty thriving part of our business. And we think we, that we have an incredible ability to think about IP sort of everywhere. And so I sort of, I'm giving you a hard time around the television. We think you can build a franchise that can have a podcast, that can have a conference platform, that can have a long 22 minute show on Netflix or on A&E, or it could be an eight minute show on Comcast Watchable. You can also have a website. You can also have a Facebook community. You can also have an Instagram strategy. I think that is the future. So the more that we continue to sort of bucket these conversations attached to the product, which is why I'm like, is it the thing okay, on the Okay, let's TV? attach it to the business model. You want to get paid to create content. You don't want to necessarily just be out there selling ads. Yes? No. It's a different, it's a diversification strategy. It's a different business model. I think the business model around making a, a production plus co like a, like a margin on your production, like that's not a super attractive business model on its own. So I think you have to have the reason I'm talking about the bigger picture here is mm -hmm. that's the only place it gets interesting is can you actually think about building an IP or build, building franchises that hit five or six different ways that we can monetize and can you build a business plan that actually is is that spans different individual mediums that's the future and there's not a lot of people who i think are competitively positioned to win in that version of the future okay so diversification of revenue is is has been a big theme 2017 going to be a big theme in 2018 for a lot of people that's meant subscriptions but there's also licensing so how can, I think 2017 was a time when a lot of people were down on ad-dependent media. When they call it ad-dependent, um, you know that they're down on it. Um, give me a case mm -hmm. for advertising being the overwhelming majority of a media company's revenue. So I think about diversification a little bit differently. So I, you, or you can sort of take diversification in two directions. Like one is you can put all sort of anything that is, that is supported by an advertiser dollar in sort of ad supported. And then you can sort of look to commerce, you can look to subscription. 
I think that there's not enough focus on diversification within your advertising products. And that's where we put a lot of energy is so we want to be a solution for any end of a marketer's needs, right? So if you want audience at scale in a quality um, environment you can trust, you should work with us in our concert business. If you want custom content, it really deeply integrated programs, um, you should do branded content with us. If you want to align with high uh, quality editorial IP, you should work with us um, in an editorial sponsorship capacity. But I think a lot of companies only fit in one of those buckets. They're either a, t a pure display media play where they're just out there sort of talking about audience and scale or your pure custom content and you can do great custom content, but you can't deliver any scale to those programs that take a lot of time and energy to do. Mm -hmm. We're focused on how do I build a diverse business that does those two things really well? And then how do we communicate to customers that we should be a part of your solution set in either one of those scenarios? So, I mean, basically what you're saying is, is it's fine because they're all coming out of a marketer budget, right? And I think a lot, of, a lot of people are saying that's too fickle, too much goes to Google and Facebook, they're too good at what they do, we need to have subscriptions, or we need to have licensing, or we need to sell t-shirts, we need to do something yeah. that gets that percentage down. Is that fair? I mean, so you're basically saying like you can have a business that's 80 plus percent dependent on marketer budgets. You just have to do it really well and diversify within that. Yeah. Look, I think if, if I, I imagine most business leaders will sort of make the prudent decisions on if, if you think you have a huge commerce opportunity and it makes sense for you to invest your overhead against that line of business based on the return you expect, you should totally do that. And I think there's great brands that are poised to totally win in commerce or totally win in merchandising. Um, it has to be relative to probably their scale, right? If you don't have a ton of scale, but you have a super loyal audience, that's a great place for you to focus. <clears throat> I think on if you are going to be largely what you're describing sort of is ad supported or ad dependent. I think having diversity in in your brands, diversity in the, the go-to-market tactics, a diversity in um, the ways that a single advertiser can work with you. So can we get your holiday, you know, can you work with us in holiday? Can you work with us when you have a design focus? Can you work with us when you have an Epicurean focus? That allows us to weather the fluctuations in the marketplace, I think, mm -hmm. better than some of our peers. Whereas, like, if you don't care, if you're a beauty brand and you're only a beauty brand and someone decides that their customer base is not interested in beauty or, or you move from a female-centric approach to a male-centric approach, you've lost that client forever and you don't have anything else mm -hmm. that meets their needs. So you're in mostly in competitive consumer, large consumer categories. I mean, Recode is a little bit different historically, but for most of them, you're in broad consumer categories, most of the brands. Yeah. Um, does that- That people care a lot about. That people care, yes. Well, that, they wouldn't be broad categories without people caring. Uh, does that close the door on subscription models? I don't think so. I mean, the, the thing I like about subscription or even the talk about subscriptions is it, it puts front and center that your content needs to be worth paying for. And I think to, if, if like that's a great strategy for anybody because I think it can hold your your programming strategy accountable and sort of remind you that like mattering 
uh, is part of this. Um, I think where where I think it's interesting or sort of worth exploring is if you have a niche audience that is really valuable and where you also provide something to that niche audience that they can't get somewhere else. So that's the sort of criterion of, I think, even thinking about a subscription mm -hmm. model. I think Recode's an interesting place um, to, to, to consider a subscription model. I think what you guys are doing and the sort of the reason that we're here proves that, you know, people are worth willing to pay you guys $395 for something. This and is a means, great ad. I know. I was, you know, this is actually a live podcast read <laughs> that I'm not getting paid for. Um, but that's, but that I think is, that's the profile. But I it's harder, it's harder for SB Nation. Less. It's harder for SB Nation and sports. There's a lot of people doing sports. So, so I don't think we would think, I don't think we would apply right. a one size fits all if we ever wanted to explore subscriptions. I think the advantage we have with SB Nation is it's massive. And so we have a really nice, attractive business around um, SB Nation because of its audience size. You know, Recode looks a lot different. It's incredibly powerful. We have an incredibly influential audience, but there's probably sort of a finite capacity for that audience to grow. But I imagine that audience, because they pay us a lot of money to come to our mm -hmm. conferences and they get a lot of value out of that. Um, you know, could be interested in a subscription. How about commerce? Are you doing much in commerce? Well, I would say we're in really exploratory early stages with commerce. Um, again, it's like for us, it's like an interesting bet um, that 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 we want to put some time and energy into. Um, but it's pretty early stages. But okay. I think it's exciting. Okay, so you mentioned uh, before concert because you overlook con concert, right? Uh, so programmatic, programmatic has also gotten beaten up a lot this year. It's it's also a boogeyman that's uh, uh, for driving down CPMs. Um, so concert, the whole idea is you're going to take the good parts of programmatic and leave behind the bad parts. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I'm trying to sort of decouple what makes concert interesting and programmatic. And the reason I'm doing this is because like programmatic is like a way to buy concert. It's not the thing. So I think what people are looking for out of, out of programmatic is they're looking for efficiency um, and they're looking for sort of like transactional ease. What doesn't exist in the programmatic marketplace is, is quality creative in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that's where we recognize that there is a need for doing quality creative at scale with big audiences and safe environments. So if you can make that available programmatically, I think it makes it just that much more compelling. Okay. So going into 2018, got to ask for predictions. Give me something that is going to happen next year that a lot of people don't think is going to happen? Um, this is so funny. It's a live is, podcast. We can edit I know, it out. I know. This is, <laughs> this is Brian's. This is a version of Brian's favorite question, which I, which I, this is actually an inside I joke know. because, uh, we did a, we did a, we did a session at advertising week. And right before we went on stage, I told Lindsay, I was going to ask her, what's one thing you believe that, other people do not believe. And uh, she made me not ask her the question. So this is sort of my revenge. This is revenge. <laughs> it's kind of a complex question because I think there's just so much disagreement in terms of what's true or not true in this industry right now that it's, I have a hard time coming. I mean, I do have predictions about 2018. I don't know if people agree or disagree with them. Okay, give me the most interesting one. <laughs> you wore me down. <laughs> well, we've talked about two of them. I think. 
the, the maybe the one I'm most resolved on is really is what we talked about earlier is this like are marketers going to to actually sort of align their investments with their fears around brand safety and transparency and I'm I thought that would have been a 2017 prediction it seems impossible for that to not happen in 2018 but I wish I was more bullish on it um and the second thing I don't know all these YouTube scandals they happen they're usually started by a Rupert Murdoch owned publication and then everyone does their gambling in Casablanca routine and then YouTube's numbers keep going up. Yeah, I think that's that's why it just feels nonsensical. There's an aspect of it that feels nonsensical, which leads me to think there's just a piece of it that maybe I don't understand. Um, but I but I have to imagine at some point there will be a more rational balance of investments across, you know, premium content who, you know, with providers who really know and understand their audiences and uh, the dollar is going to Facebook and Google. But I mm -hmm. don't know what timeline that's going to happen. Okay. On. So final question is, will 2018 be the year of massive consolidation? I mean, I did yeah. a podcast. I did a podcast. Uh, just the reason I, I asked this. Um, I think it was last week with Brian Goldberg, and he said this: there's just too many players in this industry that, in order to compete with with Google and Facebook out there, that there needs to be far fewer players. I I agree. I think you know the way that I I look at it is, I can't imagine what it would be like to run a business for a small media company. I don't know how you would compete. And not only because of like of the, the duopoly or sort of who's in the competitive space, it's changing so quickly. And the advantage that we have by being able to distribute resources across multiple brands and multiple business lines, and maybe even more so the ability to test and experiment and get out of those tests faster or not have to sort of roll those big programs or sort of like pockets of innovation across multiple brands, I think is a huge asset. It also gives us some a little bit of leverage um, with the partner platforms um, because we can we can sort of build those relationships as a portfolio company. So there's just there's 25 other advantages that I think we have um, that I just don't know how I don't know how I would do my job at a place that didn't have access to that. I'm feeling uncomfortable as a person from one of those places without <laughs> access to all those things. And what you do is you have live podcasts with people like yourself you and hustle. you hustle and you have a membership program like Digiday Plus for $395 you create a great year. value for your customers, yeah. many of whom are in the room exactly. eating great parm sandwiches, yes. listening to incredible premium content. Exactly. So on that note, we are going to wrap it up. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brian. And thank you, Vox, for having us. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And thanks again to Vox Media for having us. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and tell us what you think. Please do leave us a review and rate us. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. Thank you, Aditi, for all you've done this year and producing these wonderful podcasts. We'll be back next week.